God, writing a DSM for the MCU would be a fucking pain, hey? You charged through the roof for that one. <laughs> Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'm going to begin by acknowledging the Gunditjmara people, the traditional owners of the land on which I am gathered today. And I pay my respects to the local people for allowing us to have our gathering on their land and to their elders past, present and future. Thank you, Michael. And I will acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, which is where I am gathered today to record this podcast. As for the first time ever, we are recording remotely together. <laughs> I'm in a sunny, undisclosed rural location. How's it going? How are you finding it? Uh, it's a really... It's a good job that I'm doing. I'm doing a psychiatry intern job, so that's relevant to my interests. Um, But I'm a long way from you, my dear podcast convener. No other second secondary wife, tertiary (laughs) mother. What are we talking, Steph? What are we going to do? Where where are we at? Do we need to talk about what we've been up to? Uh, Well, I just want to tell you um, what I was just doing before we started recording tonight. I have been listening to the Hot Girls Theory podcast, an excellent female-led intersectional feminist podcast with two young, amazing women who are just so fucking smart and savvy, you know, 10 or more years younger than me. And they've invited me to be on their podcast and they're going to do, well, one of the girls is going to do an episode with me on Psychocinematic. And I'm feeling a bit intimidated because just they're so eloquent. They, they're very professional at their podcast, unlike ours, which is a little bit scrappy. What do they talk about? What's the angle? Feminist theory and queerness. And there's like, you know, uh, am I the asshole um, episodes? They're doing, they did a history of gender dynamics. And they talked about Roe v. Wade. There's just so much really good historical and current sort of information and and discussion and it's bloody good so we'll see we'll see how it goes but definitely listen up yeah cool what are we talking about tonight Steph I just said to myself I think it's time it's a genre of film I'm not into but lots and lots of people are it's time to do a comic book movie it's time to do a marvel piece of media I thought we would do moon Knight. I knew that already. You did, because you watched it with me. I thought it was a good one to do because it's recent, it's current, it's a series, but it's only six episodes, so it's easily digestible. It's had a lot of media around its portrayal of mental illness. It has Oscar Isaac in it, and I find him quite easy on the old eye. Wouldn't kick him out of bed if he farted. I wouldn't. I wouldn't kick you out of bed if you farted either. And it's also a new entry into the Marvel canon. There isn't really any other, like, series of shows or um, movies, so it's not like we have to watch Iron Man from start to finish to get it. It's very Mm. self-contained. I'm sure there'll be a sequel. So, you know, to understand the lore, we didn't have to do a whole bunch of research. There's no, like, the snap and power crystals or whatever. Like, I know what you're saying. It's self-contained. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, like, when I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the Moon Knight um, comic book series, there are a lot of comics within it. So I'm sure there'll be more yeah. series to come. Should I tell you the plot? We have a scatty little plot that we wrote while we were watching it. 
So um, kind of opens with Stephen, who's Oscar Isaac. He's an English boy in London working at a museum. You did write museum boy. I did write mm-hmm. museum boy. That's his job title. That's what he applied for. That's what he gets paid for. He's an MB level number six. He, that's what he's on his payslip. And he seems to think that he's been sleepwalking and people are calling him Mark for some reason. He doesn't know why. Um, and he's been tying himself down at night to stop himself from sleepwalking. Anyway, we find out pretty quickly that he's got sort of this second life as another bloke called Mark, who is also Oscar Isaac. It's the same two people living in the same person's body. Wow. Um, and Mark is sort of carrying out the quite violent whims of an ancient Egyptian god called Khonshu. Um, he has an, a nemesis whose name is Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke, who is um, also an, an avatar of an Egyptian god called Amit. And Mark has a wife called Layla. Um, They've been hunting for a golden scarab, which, frankly, I don't know. I wrote that down by the end of the season. I don't know what the golden scarab was all about. (laughs) I like scarabs. They remind me of Aladdin. Yeah, or the mummy. So Mark and Stephen can communicate with each other and occasionally wrestle control from the other. They talk to each other via mirrors, which are improbably bountiful in this Marvel universe. At some point or another, Mark takes use of um, this Moon Knight suit that Conchu gives him that heals, you know, really grave injuries and looks cool. And it gives him some sort of powers as well. Yeah, I think it's got powers. He even at one point had like a grappling hook, which was never explained. Or like a like a scythe or something. No, like he, he had like at one point in a fight, he shoots a little thing out and he's like, like, you know, Batman. Anyway, it's never explained. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so long story short, they're trying to stop Armit from being summoned because Armit's whole game is killing people for doing bad things, but even if they haven't yet done the bad thing. Mm-hmm. So before they've done them, like in the like the future prediction. Yeah. So like if you do something wrong in the future, um, it will kill you, even if you've been good up until now. Whereas Conchu's game is just killing people who have done bad things. So there's Oscar Isaac is trying to stop Ethan Hawke from making Amit a real thing. And all this bullshit happens. <laughs> I have no fucking clue. Anyway, the good guys win. It might not be bullshit. I just didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. The, the plot was like. Secondary. At some point, Oscar Isaac gets shot by Ethan Hawke and he goes into an afterlife. And we find out that Mark and, and Stephen are two separate alters in a dissociative identity disorder system. And they, in this afterworld sort of um, purgatory type place, which is set up to look like a psych ward, they have to resolve, they have to accept one another in order to fucking i don't know balance the scales so that they can go to the afterlife yeah they yeah. need to balance the scales but they don't want to go to the afterlife because they end up alive at the end they want to bargain enough so that they can go back yeah and be alive anyway they have to reconcile one another they go back to life and then the huge crocodile fights a huge bird skeleton in front of the great pyramids oh i forgot about that bit <laughs> <laughs> But also um, they have to reveal all their memories of each other in order to reconnect 
together. That's a really key part. That's it. Yeah. And sorry, I should have mentioned like Mark is American action hero. He's a mercenary. He's got a past history of killing lots of people in wartime situations. He he has this memory in the psych ward that he doesn't want to go to. He doesn't want to explore and he has to confront it in order to heal. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, good guys win. There's an after credit sequence indicating that there is a third altar and this is also hinted at earlier in the series when both Stephen and Mark black out and they don't know who's taking control, but all these people end up dead. Apparently in the comic books there is a third altar who's like unrepentantly very, very violent. Um, anyway, did that make sense? Yeah, I feel like we missed a bit of the backstory, but I think we'll come back to it when we talk through we'll the DID stuff. That's the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Also. Um, That's who's who in the zoo. Oh, I just want to add that his wife. Layla is pretty fucking cool and very instrumental to the plot and gets a bad rap. Yeah. Should be called Moon Knight's Sick Wife. Moon Knight and Moon Girl. (laughs) Thank you for that plot. Let's talk about lived experience. Does anybody have any DID in this film? Absolutely not, Um, as far as we can tell. I'll take you through the creators of Moon Knight that I discovered. Um, The actual writers of Moonlight from Marvel are these two very old white dudes, Don Perlin and Doug Mensch. Uh, didn't find anything about their lived experience. Not surprised. Doug Mensch sounds Jewish. Oh, yeah. That, that might be some lived experience there. But other than that, in terms of mental illness, couldn't find a thing. Jeremy Slater was the writer and creator of the series. He wrote the extremely panned Fantastic Four movie that no one saw that went straight to DVD. He has done lots of prolific series and movies and TV shows. The Umbrella Academy is his baby as well, which I haven't seen. I think I started it and I didn't. I didn't. I don't even know why. Everyone says it's really good, but um, one of my Instagram mates uh, did mention that the one of the current members of the Umbrella Academy has a superpower, which whenever he's a villain, whenever he uses it, he's, it creates facial dysmorphia, which is a bad trope. Mm, yes, I agree. So it makes me not want to watch it, but I'm sure there's lots of good things in it as well. Mm. As for Jeremy Slater's lived experience, um, I didn't find much at all, but he this is what he's said in interviews. They got Dr. Paul mm. Puri in to talk about DID. I've heard that name before, and he is a psychiatrist who – is an on-set supervisor and um, assistant to lots of movies. Yeah, cool. Yeah, consultant mm. to make sure they, they get things right. Okay. He's very experienced. He works in UCLA and that's good that they got him in to talk about DID yeah. and offer feedback. Mm. They also got a Jewish rabbi in and a, an Egyptian archaeologist. So that's good. Why did they get a rabbi in? Because Mark Spector is Jewish, but you don't see a lot of that come through apart from the fact is well the only time i noticed is that his mum had a shiva true oh yeah yeah true well cool good they've consulted yeah they've consulted also uh mohammed diab who was a director who directed quite a few of the episodes he did a movie called amira which looks really interesting Mm. he's an egyptian filmmaker he's done like mostly family dramas right yeah i think so like not really um fantasy sci-fi sort of stuff and so he's very interested in the person that he's trying to depict so he talks a little bit about he needed to try and get people to relate to these characters but again no mental health history that i could come across yeah 
and I think their intentions were good. Like Jeremy Slater was saying, like he they really want to do justice to the mental health metaphor that's at the heart of the show. Not everyone's going to be experiencing what Mark and Stephen go through. Everyone has their own struggles, so it's really important that they put out something that's positive about mental illness um, mm. because it's going to carry the Marvel brand and have millions of people watching it. So they wanted to get it right and they wanted it to be empowering for viewers rather than feeling lonely or isolated or attacked. So coming at it from that perspective, I think, was really good. They've got really good intentions, hey? Great intentions. Mm. Intentions are one thing. We'll talk about the execution soon. Oh, you better believe it. Oh, you better believe it. (laughs) Oscar Isaac, do you know much about our boy Oscar? Look, the only thing that I really thought of was the fact that he's like... I guess, been kind of colonised by Hollywood in a way. I don't know, maybe it's not my place to say, and I apologise if it is, but he's, like, changed his name and, and stuff. And to make it more, in, like, European sounding. Yeah, yeah, and I wondered, um, you know, lots of colonial themes in this show about, like, Egyptian treasures and stuff, and that was such a yeah. thing for whiteys in, in pith helmets and safari gear, like, trying to break into tombs and appropriate shit cultures, from yeah. other cultures, you know? That's a bit of a stretch. Have you? What did you turn up? Well, I think I think you're right because I found out he moved from Guatemala um, at the age of six months um, and he was in a very traditional spiritual family and there's a lot of that. He called it spiritual abuse. There's a lot of articles out there and there's a really good one from Esquire and it's just very beautiful because there's lots of gorgeous photos of him posing in very nice outfits and he talks a lot about like he had this fear put in him as a young child with a strong religious, almost that persecutory fear, which I what think... What of repercussions in the afterlife or, you know, God, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that sort of thing. God God will strike the fear of you. Um, so I think he's definitely experienced some hardship <laughs> Yeah. in some ways. And I just... By the by, too, like, he played Lewin Davis and Inside Lewin Davis and he wrote and sang those songs in the movie, so... Did he write those songs? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, in this article it says he did, so... Did he write the... Yep, shout, yep, yep. No, never mind. Are you talking about... When Adam Driver's singing Adam Driver's with him. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right, I forgot. Shot to the moon I thought you were Mr. doing Patterson. Please, Mr. Kennedy, boop, boop. It's a really good movie. Um... But he, it looked like he did a lot of research into DID and really wanted to get it right. Yeah, that's what struck me too. And he clearly likes to immerse himself in a character, as we've seen in Lewin Davis and other films. Mm. He did say that his uncle suffered, this is his quote, my uncle suffered with mental health issues. He started crying watching an episode of Moon Knight because... I think it just felt like being seen. There was something there that felt like an acknowledgement of the pain and what people do with pain and the forgiveness of how you forgive yourself and come to terms with the child within you. He's also a very articulate man. (laughs) So there's definitely, and that that was in a lot of articles that his uncle really related to the character. So obviously there's some family history there. Mm. And he also used his brother to sort of fill in for when he's talking to, like when he's playing Stephen and he's talking to Mark and vice versa. His brother, mm. like, stood in for the other actor because um, yeah. he wanted to talk to someone who was most like himself. Looked like him. Yeah, right. Yeah, which I thought was pretty cool. I can't imagine being able to do that with my brother or sister. I just laugh at them the whole time. So well done, <laughs> Oscar. He's a professional. You probably look more like your brother too. If, if, you, if you ever want to do that, get, pick, get pick, Nick. Picnic. Yeah. Picnic. 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 <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so he really wanted to respect the role, respect the mental health journey. Mm. So while I don't think he had really any personal lived experience with this particular mental health journey, he obviously came at it with, again, good intentions and respect and wanting to get it right and putting a lot of focus into that, which I really respect. I do too. And that's like the next best thing, right, to having lived experience isn't it like approaching it with respect and researching yeah 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 and when it comes to did it would be hard to get an actor who has did it's i mean i do think about this sometimes it's you know it's one percent of the population so you can potentially extrapolate that it's one percent of actors that times the one percent of actors who are any good it becomes vanishingly. And, and able to carry a Marvel film. Yeah, yeah. And again, just like we've said with lots of films, this is a good step in the right direction, hoping that in future there is an actual actor with actual lived experience in these roles. Yeah. Ethan Hawke has sad eyes. <laughs> Full stop. I didn't look up at <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Well, there's obviously a past there. He's got sad eyes. Oh, there's a past there. <laughs> what happened, Ethan? He's made of wood. What happened, Ethan? I, l- I looked up the actor who played Layla. Her name's May Kalamaway. Kalamaway. I don't know how to say her name. I'm, I apologise, May. She is an Egyptian-Palestinian actress and she's the first Arab-slash-Middle Eastern character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is A, really disappointing and sad, and B, thank goodness <laughs> that there is one now. <laughs> Uh, I quite like her. I started off being like, here we go. She's going to be like the annoying wife character, but she actually kicked a lot of ass and I liked mm. her. And she did most of the stunts herself, so fucking queen. And I found out two facts. One, that she has alopecia, mm. so some lived experience of having a chronic health condition. Mm. And then her her first crush was Thackeray Binks before he becomes a cat in Hocus Pocus. <laughs> <laughs> Lived experience, okay. Should we talk about accuracy? I might start with what we assume Mark has. Yes. Um, And it's very clear that what they're attempting to portray in this show, I don't think they actually name it, but it's dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. It used to be called multiple personality disorder, but this is created in present day. So that's what he would be diagnosed with. Do you have any uh, objections to this, Michael? Oh uh, no, like no objection. It's it's very it's it's clear that, that that that's what's going on. But like at the start of the series, I thought that maybe it was more of a psychosis with hallucinations of the gods and its delusions, and of course, functional decline, the most important symptom. And can you explain to everyone what functional decline actually means? (laughs) It's a very clinical term. Just, you know, he's struggling at work, he's often late and he's sort of on his final warning and struggling with relationships. And I think if we went, like after the first episode, maybe it was the second, I spoke to Elise, our uh, doctor friend with a, a sleep specialty, the fact that he tries to keep himself awake in order to stop himself from sleepwalking. Like it looks like there's like some sort of sleep condition and, you know, anyone would say if you don't want to sleepwalk, don't like stop yourself from going to sleep. That's not going to help. Mm. Bad idea. Uh, yeah, it could be uh, some sort of parasomnia. And when you when you mentioned that it could be some sort of psychosis with the Egyptian gods and the, the voice, like the, that is like an auditory hallucination, that would be fine except that there are other people who believe those things to be true. So it would be a shared hallucination. Oh, so as in like the fact that it's a hallucination of a god 
but the fact that it's part of an accepted cultural reality. Yeah. That being said, though, like people who actually see angels and are impaired by the fact that they see angels and the angels command them to do violent things, like you would call that psychosis, even though, you know, angels are part of the iconography of... I don't think I don't think you'd ever get away with not calling it psychosis if the angels told the person to kill people and they acted on it. In today's world, yeah. Which is what is, is happening here. Yeah. Like Conchu tells him to kill people and he does it. And yeah, I wondered if maybe this we were just seeing like the film representation of his internal state. Yes, and that's a good point. It, that that theory was quickly dispelled by Oscar Isaac all of a sudden speaking in an American accent and behaving differently. Yes, and telling him to take over his body and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's clear that there are two personalities at least, or we don't really call them personalities anymore. Um, they're fully-fledged people, I guess, so we call them alters. Or a personality state is probably a better way to describe it. Um, so what dissociative identity disorder is, which we've actually explained a few times in this podcast, it's a disruption of identity characterised by two or more distinct personality states, which may be described in some cultures as an experience of possession, like what we were sort of saying before. Mm. The disruption of marked discontinuity in sense of self and sense of agency accompanied by related alterations in affect, behaviour, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition and or sensory motor functioning. And those signs and symptoms may be observed by others or reported by the individual. It also includes recurrent gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic events that are inconsistent with ordinary forgetting. The symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And it is not a normal part of a broadly accepted cultural or religious practice. Like in kids, it's not like an imaginary friend, which is pretty normal for kids to have. And that's a good point, that last one, because, you know, at first, oh, Conchu is the other altar. That's my thought was, oh, Conchu is the person controlling him. But then Mm. that is separate to the fact that he has an altar. It's almost a coincidence that he also has. He's also the avatar for Conchu. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot going on, yeah. So accuracy. So those are the criteria. And, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that he meets all of those criteria. He absolutely does. There are some reported inaccuracies, though. And there's quite a few articles that I read who said that it was pretty accurate. But there's also a couple of things that didn't quite get right or isn't common for people yeah. with DID. I think what really was interesting about the show is the first episodes are from Stephen's perspective of losing control of what often people with DID call the system. So they're a system of alters. We think he's the host, basically. He's the person who is the main personality state. Mm. And then some Lucy, Mark, turn up. And then we discover that Mark was actually the person who is the host personality state and Stephen's the alter. So is is the, can the host be thought of as like the original person host is probably not the right word to use i'm probably using the terms wrong there the the word host came up in my reading but i wasn't sure yeah, it did too in mine but I'm, I'm, it wasn't from pe- people who actually had did so i would mm. i would want to know what they like to call yeah um it could be the first personality state that might be what they prefer yeah yeah and that yeah that was an interesting way to look at it because often we sort of see it the other way around when we see depictions and I think what was probably more accurate is that 
Stephen is a believable, fully-fledged person with interests and skills and hobbies and mannerisms and traits, which is very sort of affirming and from what I've read and what it seems can be quite real for people with DID. Mm. On the other hand, there can be not very fully-fledged personality states that come out as well. As in, in real life, the alters kind of run the gamut of being like a sort of a caricature-ish... Not so much a caricature-ish, but like have limits to how... Like a one-dimensional... Yeah, how do, how many dimensions they have, yeah. Yeah, versus ones that are more sort of multifaceted. Yeah, and I think of the fact that Stephen is a very, very fleshed-out person unto himself is I think they did a good job with that. Whereas when you watch something like Sybil, they are very much caricatures. Yeah. Or like Split with the one that has diabetes. Yes, that's my personality. I have diabetes. Oh, I need insulin. I can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) That is your whole personality, Michael. (laughs) You know, you know, you can believe that Stephen is a real, and, you know, credit to Oscar Isaac for being really good at acting to be able to do that. But I think it was believable. Although some people think that his accents are a bit fake. I thought he did a really good job. I liked it. I thought there's lots of British people who sound even more sound like they're from London than him. So just when he said he says plonker at one point, <laughs> I really, I actually really got a kick out of that. Yeah. So like it's it's accurate in the sense that there are altars, and you know, on, on the spectrum of how f- fleshed out these altars are, they both are very fleshed out. Mm. What about... Things that are less accurate? Yeah. I don't know if they... You know how he kind of has to talk in a mirror to talk to the person? I don't think that's common. Is it a thing at all? Maybe it is. Seems unlike... That's more of a hallucination. I think so. In one of the Very Well Mind articles I read, psychiatrist called Dr. Cornelia said it's it's actually less likely for that sort of thing to happen. Well, I I think he kind of says... And in my opinion, quite rightly, I think he says that while it's not really a likely thing to happen in real life DID, maybe it's just the movie representation of what it might be like. Yes. He says that the alters are kind of aware of each other. Yes. And can communicate with each other. Not to make it sound like a weird lab specimen thing, but they are, they, yeah. Yeah. There's like intrapsychic communication in between the alters that I, I would feel pretty confident saying it doesn't occur through reflections. Yeah, uh, not commonly at least. And he also says that it's uh, more common for the alters to be aware of the host, but the host not necessarily knowing that there are alters. So it's very uh, uncommon okay. for Stephen not to realise he's actually an alter um, um, and not realise that Mark's not even not even know that Mark's there because Mark yeah. was the host personality state. Yeah. It's more likely that... Stephen would know. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark does seem to know about Stephen. Yes, he definitely does. Yeah, yeah. That's another inaccuracy too is the fact that Stephen almost like creates like consciously Stephen because he's in love with this Tomb Raider big titty woman. Yeah, we we should probably very quickly explain that actually. The way that Stephen is is born from Mark is in the setting of really significant trauma where he kind of inadvertently leads to the death of his younger brother by drowning and then his mother kind of systematically abuses him from then on as, as punishment. Yes, blames him for his brother's death and becomes an alcoholic and an abusive parent until she dies. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, they were they were at risk. They were sort of exploring a cave like this Egyptian explorer in the TV show or a movie they liked called Stephen Grant, who was an English fellow. And the way they kind of portray this happening in the, in the show is that Mark is, you know, being assaulted by his mum and he looks up and he sees the poster of this guy on his wall and that's when Stephen, like, pops up. Yes, and says, dear, oh, dear, look at this mess. Yeah, it's a very, very Hollywoodized version. Yeah, it's a neat and tidy. Yeah, it's very obvious that creation of altars isn't something that people do on purpose or consciously. Mm. There hasn't been any evidence that people go, I'm going to create a person I want to be to dissociate from. It's something that the mind, through that stress and trauma, does unconsciously Mm. so that's unlikely that that would have happened but it's kind of it's probably quite common that the traits of the personality is is some the personality that can handle the abuse or has the traits that the the host doesn't have or wants or desires yeah that english stiff upper lip can just handle abuse or maybe it was yeah because obviously mark the person that we see is very physical and quick-witted in terms of like street smarts but Stephen museum boy is more intellectual and more cognitively adept does is do you think that helps him survive his mum I don't think so yeah yeah that (laughs) That doesn't make sense yeah um but in the future it does It, it helps and so like in the you know development of DID trauma plays a pretty big role right yeah and I remember you saying that you know it's it's very Hollywood to have this significant trauma lead to this this mental illness developing but in terms of DID most if not all DID stems from an experience of severe childhood trauma and it's usually before the age of six because that's when your brain your personality is most malleable Mm. and flexible so another inaccuracy is that you see that his birthday after that scene, when he switches, he's turning nine. So that's actually quite late for it to develop. Yeah. It would be about five or six. That's probably more common. In a lot of depictions, you see it's about five or six or even four. So yeah, that's a little bit inaccurate and they could have just easily fixed that. Fix it. Go back and fix it. Fix it in post. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like for from an audience perspective, I feel like it's kind of worse to see a nine-year-old's Oh yeah. Go through it. Raises the stakes for the for the viewer from a from a film point of view. I would have hated to see a four year old go through that. Like for my my own sake. <laughs> You're right, but like you can pin more like it's it's the personality itself is more yeah fitting for a nine year old. Yeah. A couple of things to mention as well is just like the way they switch is it seems very controlled at first not but then later on very deliberate and that's not common as well it's more a a response to stress or triggered by something that an alter can come out um, or context driven so that's very inaccurate that it can be just like you take over okay yeah very convenient for this film though it is and 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 i guess on a more positive side even if it's inaccurate it kind of pulls the Donnie Darko move of treating the mental illness as the superpower. Which I also have sort of a problem with. But I know, know, yeah, it kind of <laughs> plays a bit into that sort of gifted trope. Yeah. But, you know, it is also nice to see something that's a bit strength-based, even if the strength is, like, made up. <laughs> um, and one last thing I'll say is the rolling his eyes in the back of his head. 
It's a little much for me. Pretty much nothing beyond seizures causes you to roll your eyes. No. That could be your head. And if you're being filmed, the camera suddenly zooms in on you. <laughs> like, yeah, no, nah, it's it's not a thing. But again, it's it it signals to the audience something's happening. Something in his is happening in his brain. Yeah, we need to know. We need yeah. to know that. But it's interesting. This is kind of slight, somewhat off topic, but similar. I was reading about Adam Scott in Severance. Tell me more. Talking about. I'm always happy to talk about. <laughs> another of your screen crushes. Talking about. Have you noticed that these these people look a little bit like you? Though? I think older Adam Scott is starting to look more and more like your dad. But anyway. <laughs> what? Yeah. Maybe Oscar Isaac, but not Adam Scott. Yeah, righty. He was talking, I don't know, if anybody's seen Severance, if you haven't, you should watch it. It's really good. Um, but the transition happens when he, from from one character to the other, happens when he's going down in a lift. And it's yes. only the most subtle little moment. A- Adam Scott actually made a joke about like how, oh, maybe one of them will wear a beret and walk with a limp. And like, But they, they very deliberately made them the same character just with different memories that's a really good point too like it shows that some subtlety can mean a lot more than the oh now i'm a different person yeah but of course that's a marvel cinematic universe versus a severance cinematic universe there's going to be a different style yeah but i i have to say uh i was really impressed by oscar isaac's performance his whole physicality and Everything about him just changed on a dime. And, yeah, I, I actually thought that was really impressive. And, like I said, I bought the English accent. And also just the kind of, yeah, just change in demeanour that Stephen has versus Mark. Like, I thought it was very a very skilled performance. And I, I started off thinking that they were going to go, like, Mark has, like, these superpowers and he's really fucking can do cool shit with his body changes like they did mm. with Split, which is just disgustingly outrageous yeah but after having watched the actual show from beginning to end it's believable like you know Stephen's a pretty fit guy but he doesn't look like he does anything to achieve that fitness but and then Mark's doing all that for him he just Mm. doesn't put those skills that he doesn't realize he has to use and Mm. same way Mark doesn't have that knowledge that and and often some people with DID can have knowledge that's completely different from the other altars or learn a language or um, yeah something like you know that Egyptian history that Stephen knows mm. that can be common too. So that's almost uh, you know a reflection of that. But your body cannot change. Yeah, depending on the altar. But it, it I mean it is a, it's a nice moment when like Mark is getting attacked by the the, the mummy type monsters. And Stephen's like, mind if I muscle in it? He thinks he can't do anything, but then he realizes if you can do all that stuff, so can I. And then he bonks him. I mean, I guess it, it's not a it's not a perfectly accurate representation, but I think in the grand scheme of DID movies, it's the best it's we've had good. ever. Really, the only other thing I'll say is there's usually a lot more altars, especially by this point, than just yeah. the two and then three. Yeah, Moon Knight being an altar would make more sense to me, but it doesn't really do anything. It's just it's just a suit. I'm Moon Knight. I will say I um I came across another character from the the Marvel universe um, MCU yeah called Typhoid Mary or something and I did a little bit of a a quick sure that's not just the Typhoid Mary that we know and love no it's not it's from Iron Fist which 
I think is a is a comic turned into a series, maybe. I don't know anything you're saying. Right I know, now. I know, but I read one of those like fan wiki pages about her, which was just like tens of thousands of words with quotes in italics and hyperlinks. Anyway, it was everything I hate about Marvel. This is the thing, audience. We will dabble in this space, but we will not dive headfirst because we just don't have time. I just, I just don't like it. I just don't <laughs> think it's good. But No, it's not that. It's that we don't have time. Yeah, but this this character, apparently there's a place in the MCU called Sokovia, which just sounds like a really thinly veiled like satire of Russia, which is just like deeply fucked. Anyway, this character got really badly traumatized as an adult in Sokovia and um, develops an altar. And one of them's like really, or I think in the comic she has four, but in the TV show she has two. One of them's really timid and meek and nice and the other one's a supervillain or some shit. Anyway, it's that's just a really nasty typical DID from the same universe God, writing a DSM for the MCU would be a fucking pain, hey? You charge through the roof for that one. <laughs> and that's a good point. This is a good portrayal, I think, like in terms of accuracy. But Marvel historically has not been very good yeah. at portraying mental illness or perpetuating mental illness tropes and stereotypes and disability as well. It's done horrendous stuff. Mm. Um, so we've just happened to stumble on a good portrayal currently created, you know, this year – it's not how they've historically always treated things. And I say that only having touched the surface of the MCU. So, you know, yeah. don't come at me too hard, everybody. No, no. Just one last comment, which we, we haven't really touched on the portrayal of the psychiatric clinic. And we will get to that. You know, we as, and I think this is what they, that's definitely what they intended to do. And this is what it felt like is we're going on the journey with uh, Mark slash Stephen in discovering what's happening, what's been going on for him, his, his history, his past, etc. And going into that psychiatric clinic, you know, it's very disorienting as the viewer, not knowing is this a real experience or is this a memory or is this a alternative universe or reality or is this the current day and this has all been a hallucination in his head mm. which i think is a good job at portraying what it must be like for someone with did not knowing what's going on coming in and out of consciousness and being very disoriented and not knowing what's real and what's not and who to trust as well mm. and only being able to go by what you know <laughs> In the room. Yeah. I thought that was portrayed in a way that it felt very visceral to me as a viewer. Also, I was annoyed by it, but anyway, we'll get to that. Can we slightly start with the stereotypes, how it tackles Egyptian culture? Because I think there's been actually a lot of articles about that. Did you read anything? Look, the main, the main thing that I read was just about Muhammad Diab, who is, is sort of the main director. He directed three or four episodes and he is Egyptian and he talked a lot about how he wanted to, you know, like he insisted on shooting in Cairo and he wanted to portray Cairo in a more, you know, the way that it, someone who actually lives there experiences it. 
And I think the comment that he makes is about how anytime you see a picture of the Great Pyramids, they're in the middle of the desert, but they're actually, like, if you rotate 180 degrees, there's fucking skyscrapers there. There's 20 yeah. million people living at the foot of the pyramids. In Cairo, it's a hugely busy city. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like the fine, the climactic final scene with the big crocodile fight, you, you see that shot of the city and then the pyramids behind. And there's also like an obligatory market chase scene earlier on in the series and stuff so like a you know he attempted to show quote unquote the real Cairo slash Egypt which you know that's cool I like that and he also just talked about the fact that he's the first Egyptian director for for Marvel and you know he's hopeful that that'll open the door for other people you know from um, marginalized populations so I think that's awesome but I think it's still been very controversial in spite of all of that. Um, yeah, and I think from an Egyptian perspective, um, I read that he used a lot of songs in the show from singers who were banned from singing in Egypt, okay. which created huge buzz and lots of controversy in Egypt. But he clearly wants to highlight what he finds important. It's also, It was included heaps of Egyptian actors and directors, um, assistants, the person who did the the actual score was Egyptian. So I think that's really important. And there's a key, I didn't pick up on this initially because my first thought when we started watching this is like, are we sick of white people telling a story about Egypt and how cool it is? Because (laughs) isn't that a cultural appropriation and colonialism being like heralded as let's go and grab shit from these tombs because we think that's important. Pillage and plunder. And like mummies, the mummy was a sick film, but like, Probably couldn't make it now, and that's for the best. And the scene where Stephen is calling out the museum for not having like actually culturally relevant sweets in the gift shop, and mm. it's all just tacky, and they miss out on one of the gods in the big poster and stuff. Mm. That is a specific dig at cultural appropriation from the director Muhammad Diab, like making a point at how Hollywood has culturally appropriated Egypt and made. The, like fun and palatable but it's not egyptian so yeah uh, i thought that was good that's cool yeah i like it but an article by my medium which i often read did still think well you know disney still appropriated culture for profit with this uh tv series even if they've done it carefully and they've used all of people of egypt in the show we really need to rely on the people of egypt to say is this okay and i don't know uh, I mean, yeah, I think that's I think that's as as much as we can really say. Yeah, we it are is, not in a position to comment on that. Yeah, it is funny though because um, you know they're such enduring images because they've been plundered. Yes, and you by know Hollywood. we've we've yeah. grown up with them. It almost feels, and I'm not saying that they are, but it almost feels like they're out, not ours, but like nobody's. Yeah. That's like my gut. For the taking. That's my yeah. in- incorrect gut reaction to that comment. Well, look at most of the games and there's so yeah, there's so much of it. And then I, you know, I also wonder like it's like a dead religion, right? Like people don't worship Ra and Anubis and Cook, you know, the the ones um, Amit and Cormorant, and like you know, people don't worship pharaohs as gods anymore. Is it still offensive to some people for their religion to be treated like that? Well, I think it's it would because be... people have died over representing Muhammad in in at all, <laughs> full stop. Um, and people are very uncomfortable with 
you know, certain representations of, of God and Jesus. And To me, it would be like taking some First Nation, you know, Dreamtime stories and appropriating those and making silly, fighty, fun movies out of that, mm. which just thinking about that makes me feel uncomfortable. I guess I, I guess I don't know. I'm talking at my ass. I don't know if people still regard Egyptian gods as... People that they worship. Yeah. I feel bad for not knowing that. I'm sorry, everybody. Like, I was taught about how they fucking embalmed mummies, but I don't know if these cultures are still practiced to this day. The whole thing with the thing up the nose to get the brain out. Anyway, what else? You know, we're not an Egyptology podcast. No, and that's why we didn't do any more research on it. (laughs) I'll just also mention, as we said before, while there was a lot of focus on the Egyptian culture, the show did get flack for brushing over Mark's Jewish heritage. And I agree, they really brushed over it because we didn't really notice it. So No. But I mean what should they have what should they have done? I don't know. Mm, I, I personally don't buy that because like, yeah, he's Jewish. We saw him at a Shiva. I'm I'm sure No we didn't because he didn't go to the Shiva for his Oh okay we saw the Shiva didn't we? It was mentioned. There's probably plenty of Jewish people out there who only acknowledge their religion at a shiva. That's true. I don't. I think that's unfair. I think that's asking for a lot. I think that's asking for like a real performative acknowledgement of a character's culture who may having who said has that, every reason to acknowledge or disregard their culture. Having said that, we are not Jewish, so we can't really comment on that. Yeah, again. yeah that's fair. we're coming at it from a non-religious perspective. Yeah, I know, I know, but a character has a right to do what they they want. That's right. That's true. Let's talk about the actual subject of our podcast, mental illness. So as much as I think DID was portrayed pretty respectfully in terms of most of the accuracy, I think there's a lot of tropes, a lot of stereotypes in this show that would be nice if they weren't constantly used. For example, mental illness being a superpower, it's used a little bit less so in this one, but Mm. it was very much like, these two altars come together and they beat the demon, which is suggesting. And and that is often what they they want to empower people with mental illness, which is great and fair enough. But what about the people who don't feel like they have a superpower and they're just trying to get through the day Mm. and they don't have any fun little quirks that come from their mental illness that, that give them a little bit of a skill or advantage. Yeah. Sometimes it just sucks having a mental illness. And so have, perpetuating the trope of mental illness is actually a superpower. It's just like, oh, fuck. Well, no, yeah. it's not always. It doesn't actually help the cause of empowerment. Yeah. It, like in some ways... Sometimes we just want to exist. In, in, in some ways you almost want to see him functioning in spite of the difficulties... Yeah that DID would would obviously pose. And in spite of the difficulties that the society he lives in imposes, yeah. that makes it hard to live with DID, not yeah. so much DID itself as well. I mean, I guess, you know, you definitely see it in the first episode or two when, you know, he's blacking out, he's missing dates and things like that because he's not aware. But I think it's like, it's a really dumb message to be like people with DID you just have to reconcile all your altars and and you know you'll be greater than the sum of your parts and I think one of the articles even kind of says that's not really how we treat DID anymore yeah yeah like we're not trying to unify the person into one which is almost not quite but almost what this show is suggesting is I I disagree with that to be honest with you, and I know this is kind of getting away from stereotypes, but 
I think the fact that they turn away, and I don't necessarily like this message, but they turn away from uh, Ethan Hawke at the end and say, we could accept your diagnosis, but we want to go and save the world. I think what he would have wanted them to do in, you know, if he was indeed a psychiatrist, Harrow, is get them to um, merge. Mm. But they want to work together, still being two separate, distinct personality states. Yeah, true. Because he wants one of he wants one of them to die, right? At the Basically. End. Yeah. So he's trying to say just be one person, but they're like, no, nah, we'll be both. So to me, it was it was actually a really affirming ending. Like mm. we don't have to merge into one. We can still both exist as separate entities, but work together and achieve a functional life, mm. like work in harmony. And that is, as you say, how people treat DID now is rather than trying to get them all to integrate, which is often a very, uh, not a very affirming way to work with DID, it's getting them to sort of still exist as alters, but work together and, and have a more functional life together. So yeah, so you you you're right. So yeah. that's how I sort of saw it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I agree with that. Having said that, they're not all the alters. <laughs> There's more to come that might not yeah. be as functional. I think earlier on in the piece, when I I was wondering, like, was Conchu a representation of the, of a mental illness? Yes, I was thinking that too. And then again, perpetuating that trope of a mental illness equal a spiritual like demon or god, yeah. which is like fucking disgusting trope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also sort of harks back to old times where they literally did think that mental illness was a demon possession. And even in the DSM, in some cultures, that would be seen as possession. Yeah. But it wasn't that in the end. But maybe it is a metaphor. Mm, mm. I think it just was coming close. Well, it's just a... A, a, a guy working for an Egyptian god who happens to have DID. Yeah. So surely there's a point to be made there, I think. I mean, if it's good, really. It's like, you know, the next Spider-Man. Maybe he has OCD. It doesn't matter. He's Spider-Man. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I See, know. I feel like Marvel's always creating characters that have something and then it becomes the superhero that, you know, like Hulk struggles with anger so he becomes the whole you know it's it's every sort of fantasy sort of fairy tale or um horror thing is is based on a fear of this trait and what we you know it's it's sort of extending on a trait like um when frankenstein came out it was at a time where the industrial revolution where humans were creating more autonomous machines and stuff. So it's like, what if we... It was just taking it to a terrifying You know, what conclusion. if it went wrong? Yeah, taking it to a, a scary place. So yeah. I don't think it's just like for the sake of it, oh, well, he just happens to have DID. I think it's also like lots of other Marvel characters, it's, it's portraying an extreme version of something that's happening. Yeah. You kind of touched on this a bit. Can we talk about how these movies that and TV shows that do this sort of thing always pin it on trauma. Yeah, you did you did want to talk about that. And I like it's true. <laughs> like but with it's DID, not. it's definitely trauma. Yeah, so DID uh, obviously, but not not everybody with DID has trauma, I'm assuming. It's very unlikely that they wouldn't have trauma. Okay, DID is DID is 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 secondary to trauma more or less. But I still think it's a stereotype where, like, be they depressed, psychotic, bipolar, OCD, whatever, it's in the movies it's always traced back to some sort of trauma. 
And, you know, I think it would be nice to see a movie about somebody with mental illness who just got it out of nowhere. Like, you don't have to have trauma. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it just happens, yeah. You don't have to have family history. It can just come out of nowhere. I think Hollywood is too scared to say that. Well, I think there's there's so much stigma around mental illness that audiences can't conceive of it unless it... Well, like, I, I mean, I still, you know, a lot of people, probably more subconsciously, if I'm being charitable, probably think that mental illness is, is some sort of a a deficiency in in the person's character sort of thing. And like if we're going to watch a movie about it, well god, there better it better be trauma and not the person's fault, you know. Yes, because if it's not trauma then it's just that person's defective, yeah. Yeah, or they're malingering or something, you know. So like I take your point that DID is 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 most likely from trauma. I I, I accept that. <laughs> Not being an expert at all, but I do think it feeds into that trope. Yeah, I, I um, agree. And Marvel, you know, I put it to you, next movie, make it an idiopathic whatever. It just happens. And that's so common and it would be really nice to have that more. Another thing is like chronic illness. It just happens. It's no one's fault. Mm. Um, and disability as well. But having said that, like his trauma is pretty severe. Yes. But it, to me it was after watching Sybil – how much trauma she goes through. Yeah, it was disgusting. It, it was really very fucked up. viscerally. Yes. Yeah. It was too much. Far too much. Like, we got the point. We yeah. get it. Sally Field went through a lot, okay? Yeah. Whereas in this one, it was traumatic to watch and I didn't like it. But there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, it was It was really just, I mean, it was probably only on on screen for, you know, five seconds or something. Yeah, it wasn't... Like, nothing violent really happened. It was intimated. Yeah, it wasn't for a super long period of time. So... It was still effective and upsetting. It was effective and upsetting, but enough. They didn't push it too far, and I appreciate that. But not everyone has seen Sybil and how awful (laughs) It's really It makes you feel dirty and yuck. Physically sick, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for some people, it it would be too much, too, what we saw in Moon Knight. So... You know, everyone's got their limits. And everyone's got, this is something Maz and I said, everyone's got their own experience of trauma as well. It doesn't have to be the things that happened in Sybil. I don't want to repeat them again. We've said them enough times in, in, in that episode. It can be more small level that are consistent and, and building up and things like that. It doesn't have to be this huge fucked up arrangement of shit to have an effect on you but the worse the trauma the worse your outcomes right is that fair to say not necessarily it depends on how it affects everybody and the age that it affects you and all the different how much support you have it's all very individual Mm, mm. i don't think you can just say that fundamentally the severity of trauma will equals the severity of the outcome yeah okay fair enough it's all depends on so many things and what about doctors, therapy? Yes, let's talk about that. Clinical spaces. So as soon as the mental health institution was introduced, I was like, well, hello, here we go. What are we going <laughs> to see here that I don't like? Most of it. I absolutely hated that the psychiatrist, the doctor in the institution was Harrow, who is the bad guy the villain. in the show. Yeah. Like, I don't think you, you don't have to be a psychologist or a doctor to 
or a film person to know that that's a bad trope. Yeah. That's a really damaging, stereotypical way to portray a doctor and that it's really saying that mental health professionals are not trustworthy, they're secretly evil, you should not believe them or get help from them. Um, And he's obviously, you see him pushing treatment onto the main character and resisting that is like what we want him to do and that's just a really harmful message. It is. It kind of... I mean, it feeds into such a long history of bad representations of psychiatrists and psychiatric ward environments. But we are made to believe that this is a a present-day ward because Harrow says, oh, uh, I had to dig out my VHS recorder to watch your Tomb Man video. Like, it's clearly in in a present-day environment and it is portrayed like, cuckoo's nest type situation it looks exactly the same as cuckoo's nest and it's all really whitewashed there was that that sort of stereotype of you know everyone's getting wheeled around in a wheelchair and they're all like catatonic all sedated really unhelpful um stereotype of mental health facilities I will. D- and is that supposed to be a memory? Uh, I don't want to get into what it actually was. I didn't get it. But I, what, what I will say, like, uh, people in Victoria are probably aware of the Royal Commission that's just come out about mental health care in Victoria. And psych wards are not really great places. And No, they're not. A lot of mental health consumers are quite traumatised by their time in the, on those wards and don't like psychiatrists very much and don't like being medicated very much, particularly ones who have been sort of medicated for acute agitation the way that happens in this show, like being, quote, accuphased, is a really... What does that mean? It just means getting a a large dose of an antipsychotic for its sedative properties. And there's a lot of talk in the media at the moment about seclusion and restraining of people. And, like... It's it's pretty horrific. Yeah, I went to um, a talk from Vimiac, which was is the Victorian Mental Illness Advocacy Commission, I think, a really important organisation, and they talked through the seclusion restraint report that they did, and it was horrific. The mm. statistics that mm. they spoke about, like oh, I can't remember the statistic, but a lot of people a year are restrained or secluded mm. in Victoria mental health wards. So thing, things aren't great. Like I'm not trying to say that... Um, this isn't the reality. All doctors are great and <laughs> mental institutions are wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's been the whole deinstitutionalization movement in this mid-last century and, you know, things are better. And it's just scary to think that somebody who's, you know, potentially going to get admitted to a, to a psych ward goes into it thinking, oh, cool, I'm going to have shock treatment against my will. Maybe they'll lobotomize me. Like, you know, the doctors are going to drug me even though I'm actually fine or I'm going to get secluded. And, and I won't have any autonomy or choice of what happens to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and and as well in, in Moon Knight, that, that trope of like, no, I'm fine, you're trying to drug me and I just need to fight the drugs and then I can do it. Like that's kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but it's just like nobody in that in that clinical setting is going to give you a drug that hasn't been carefully assessed and and felt to be necessary, you know? But then I'm also... That's not what's portrayed in Moon Knight. Yeah, no, not at all. And I also get sick of when 
the protagonist in the film is in the mental institution and everyone else is like catatonic or looks creepy, looks weird and scary and they don't belong there and it's very othering of everybody else there mm. as well. Like this is some way we should be afraid of and not uh, want to be yeah. and we should be afraid of the people in there and, and they are not people that we value or that we find worthy because we want the protagonist to be better than that or he doesn't belong there sort of thing. Well, yeah, like if the protagonist, like you can generally take the protagonist to be playing the viewer, that's the person that we're, whose shoes, you know, we're in. So it's, it's yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like if we're talking about film stuff as well um, and just Hollywood's preoccupation with DID and mental illness more broadly and being institutionalised, you know, I think it speaks to this absolute terror of quote unquote losing your mind mm. mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, people are so afraid of that. And, and it's, you know, obviously it is scary. Uh, it's very terrifying when it does from, happen. Yeah. From like a neurotypical, I guess, perspective. It's terrifying. When you're in mental distress, it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I think that kind of feeding into that is this sort of prestige actor's thing where they, they all need to do a mental illness movie and, mm. you know, they have to do it well to sort get of cred. thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, it's similar to like Daniel Day-Lewis, like My Left Foot, like Tropic Thunder, that sort of quote from Tropic Thunder. But like it, it, it then becomes that mental illness just becomes this difficult exercise for an actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we like give them all Oscars and jerk off and shit <laughs> and it really trivializes it really the really trivializes experience. the the experience and um i mean i don't know what that means for somebody who's af- actually you know living with the condition well it, it you're right it trivializes it and it it, it exploits it as well mm. it's taking a real life experience that is extremely distressing but that people live with every day mm. and taking a part of it and putting it on as a costume and then um, getting accolades and money and like, oh, well done. Oh, that would have been rough. Oh, yeah. now we've, we've, we've dabbled in that space and now you can go off and live your life and be an accomplished actor. Yeah. Which is why even though Oscar did a lot of research, they all did a lot of research, it still doesn't get a full pass at having enough lived experience. I think they did it as respectfully as they could with what they had, but it's still exploiting it just like the Egyptian stuff is exploiting a culture, regardless mm. of being respectful of it or not. Sorry, Moon Knight. Sorry, every movie that <laughs> that uses mental illness to tell a story. Yeah. But that's what we're all here about. Um, just a couple of last little stereotypes which I find annoying. The fact that his mum never recovers from her son's death, like, oh, my God, I wouldn't, but also she's turned into a villain. Yeah, trauma turns her into a violent villain. Yeah, and grief breaks her, like she becomes a broken person. She, she, no one supports her or helps her or gets her stuff that she needs. And, of course, so, she's she's a woman too. She's a woman. The grief-stricken mother tropes. The dad doesn't give a shit. Yeah, I, is there a dad? Yeah, yeah. He does not look like he would be Oscar Isaac's dad. Oh, that's right. He's got really curly hair. He looks like um, Fred Armisen. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Oh, my last stereotype that I need to mention is the fact that the last altar that we see at the end is obviously a very violent altar. Yeah. And fuck the trope of mental illness equal violence. 
Yeah. Mental illness not equal violence. No, no. Mental illness equal violent towards mental illness person. Yeah, and I think that's been specifically investigated in DID. Do they perpetrate more violence than people without DID? No, they do not. And, you know, as with everything, they're more at risk of harm to themselves than harm to others. I mean, like, you know, it makes sense in the universe that they're living with where there are Egyptian gods that can, you know, tell people to kill people. Like, you know, hundreds of people died throughout just the screen time on this show. Not to mention, like, how many people got crushed by the fucking crocodile that we didn't see. You know, like, we just have to accept death and violence as a really commonplace thing in this universe. So maybe in that context, it's okay, but it's a harmful stereotype that just needs to be cut from these writers and directors' minds. But, you know... I feel like we say that in every podcast episode. People obviously like it. People love it. Are people not... Sorry, Steph. Are people not listening to our podcast? Directors aren't. Screenwriters aren't. Hollywood has not been downloading... They're definitely not subscribed to the Patreon. <laughs> I've been calling. I've been calling Stanley Tucci. Oh, I've been calling Marty. Marty. Marty Scorsese. <laughs> Marty Scorsese. You better listen to the Patreon. I've got some stuff to tell you. All right, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's bullshit, and it's, no, just it's, bullshit. it's never going to go away. It's, it's not. But, until... I mean, again, again, it. it and you know we, what? We Where that... was Doctor Puri that day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too bloody right, Dr. Puri. Like he comes, Dr. Puri comes and he advises Medical everyone. Medical negligence. But he doesn't advise them quite enough. <laughs> but I, I think it's also this um, conflation of like mental illness is losing your mind and losing your mind is losing a grip on the the norms that like make up the fabric of society. And like one of the major, major things that that rests on is not hurting each other not especially not killing people so yeah it, it i mean if you add that all up it's like mental illness equals murder which it's true in movies but it's it's absolutely absolutely untrue in the real world and and we got to fix it we got to fix it it's so bad but the people like it the people want it they pay for, they pay money for it well this is why true crime is popular michael because and that's why i like true crime because i want to know why people do these things and mental illness doesn't just doesn't explain it. And then people turn around and say that gun violence in the US is is because of uncontrolled mental illness, and it's like no, no, it's, it's not, not true. It's, it's you have a gun it's in your you, hand because <laughs> your bloody dead Andrew's baby boxes has a fucking assault rifle in it. Without repeating myself too much, let me tell you what I think was helpful about Moon Knight. Here we go. As I said, I feel like it's a very affirming depiction compared to lots of other depictions. Sorry, I thought that what you were going to say was your note that you've written here, which is Oscar is very hot. That is actually the most important point, yes. (laughs) I enjoy watching Oscar Isaac. I like his laugh. I like his (laughs) smile. I like his furrowed brow. I like when he takes his shirt off. I like that too. Wow. Anyway. Sex positive. But what was the real thing, the helpful thing? The real, no, that was real. Um, but I like that no one questions the altars. There's no need for Mark or Stephen to prove what's happening to them or that he has two personality states within the one body. 
he doesn't have to go through a rigmarole of saying no, of people not believing him. Oh, uh, but he, he does have to prove it to Layla. Yeah, but that would make sense. But mm, for true, everybody okay. else, and, and she accepts it. She accepts it pretty quickly, to be honest. Yeah. But, yeah, once it's all out in the open, it's accepted fully by anyone. There's no denial of it from anyone or yeah, disenfranchise except, <clears throat> except when they're uh, at the in in Cairo. <laughs> hey, zinger! <laughs> he's not a character. He's very fully fleshed out. You can believe him. Having Stephen as the first altar was a really good way to introduce him as a fully fledged altar. Yeah, that's true. I don't know how fleshed out Jake will be, but we'll find that, that out next season. I'm sure there'll be one. Mm. He's also likeable. Both of the characters are likeable. There's funny moments between them. Mm. They like each other in the end. Um, he's not disturbing. He's not scary. He's not an evil villain. He's a hero, but he doesn't just work alone too because, like, honestly, Layla is the real hero. Oh, the yeah. No, they're very 50-50 on the um, murder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's like a fucking superhero too. So, and in some ways that's good because she doesn't have DID and she is a superhero, but, you know. Like, she's got the whole kit and caboodle on. She's mm. a goddess. Anyway, uh, as as you said before, I take issue with seeing DID as a superpower, which is what I think it's Oscar Isaac says, you know, to be able to live through abuse or trauma and survive it and then come to terms with that as opposed to push it all away and see that journey happen. That in itself is its own superpower. That was his quote. And I is see it, what he's saying. This isn't from the show. This is him as an actor. As an actor, yeah, yeah. Sorry. And I see what he's saying, and it is quite fascinating and amazing what our brain can do to protect us from abuse. Like, it's fucking incredible that, you know, we can dissociate from trauma in order to protect ourselves, mm. you know, not even to the point of going to DID, but the way our body protects our brain and our brain protects our body is amazing. Mm. But I take issue with seeing it as a superpower because it's kind of like how mums are all seen as superheroes and it's like, oh, you're superhero. They're like, I'm struggling. And they're like, oh, well done, love. You're <laughs> doing so well. You're such a superhero. You're just a, oh, how does she do it? And mm. the mum's like, I need help. <laughs> yeah. You know, it becomes an excuse to let people just plot along and struggle by calling them superheroes. When yeah. We need to actually help those people. Mm. We need to help people with DID if they're struggling rather than saying, oh, you're a superhero. That's really cool. Not that that's happened in my experience, but we also need to stop trauma from happening in the first place rather than just marveling over what our brain does about it. And also like, what does that quote mean for the people who haven't come to terms with their trauma? No. Yeah. And a, a living, you know, a, really struggling life because they don't know why their brain is doing the things they're doing and they're really distressed by what's happening. Yeah, yeah. like to those people, it's not a Oscar. Superpower to them. Yeah, Oscar Isaac says to them, "Oh, sorry, you don't have a superpower." Exactly. I do think it did the right thing by saying that the two alters are a team. They didn't move towards them being one of them being defeated, etc. They mm. keep existing together, which is very inclusive of did and and you're right when when you say that he, he it's very explicitly stated he has a choice to kill Stephen or vice versa i can't remember and go on as one person but yeah, yeah it, it is a very um Pro- it's promoting uh, inclusive inclusive yeah it's it's an that's what you said yeah and uh, affirming depiction it's yeah you're affirming rather than denying or wanting to 
change someone when they may not want to. They're able to exist cohesively. And the um, psychiatrist I mentioned before, Canilia, said that, you know, the goal is to get alters on the same page now and working together so that the person with DID can be as functional as possible. So he liked that as well about the show. Not just me, he did too. So (laughs) we're buddies. And it's not a cure. It's not denying DID from happening. It's not trying to stop it from happening, um, which Mm. is good. It's a better way to look at it. However, this is going to happen if if alters are going to work together cohesively. It's not going to happen in like a matter of a few weeks. It's going to happen with years of therapy. Yeah. And also like, you know, social safety. Yes. Be- being in an environment that facilitates you to function and work on your, your you know, do your therapy. And in this, Which that's so, a really so good many point. people with traumatic, severely traumatic backgrounds will not have that. Not have access to. Um, you know, the context of this show, it's better for them to work together. They're going to defeat the Egyptian god. They'll both date Layla because they're, they're both sweet on her and they'll have, have a great life. Yeah. I'm sure something will turn up, but, you know, it works in this context. But in a lot of contexts, the society is what needs to change, not the person with DID, and that's not happening. Do you think... You know, this is this again is kind of like Hollywood shorthand. You know, like like maybe the the trials and tribulations that they go through in the movie, even though they only appear to take place over a series, you know, a few days. You know, maybe the fact that they get shot and they have to crawl their way back through the Egyptian afterlife and all that sort of thing. Is that a metaphor for therapy? Yeah, or at least just shorthand for it's really hard to do this yeah yeah that's a good point that's a really good point point. and the analogy that i that i would think of is like how you know falling in love and getting married and staying together forever that those sorts of relationships build over a period of months and years and and beyond sort of thing whereas like in an indiana jones movie you, you know you just need to get trapped in a in a cave with bugs on the floor and then you're in love all of a sudden but yeah look i i i if you wanted to read it that way, you probably could. I don't think that's what they were going for. But I think it still speaks to, like, the massive effort required. And the fact that they go through all the different memories in order to balance the scales, that could be a metaphor for therapy as well. It's like, it very essentially is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's mm. just a shame that it's also in a psych ward where they're resisting treatment. There, That's happening. Like, it's like, we'll do this instead of mental health treatment but this is mental health treatment going through your traumatic memories and coming to terms and healing yourself that is therapy yeah yeah you're right what was harmful about it though dr steph i don't know i I feel like there's not much more we can say that we haven't already said we yeah we it's mainly the stereotypes yeah you know it's the super here the mental illnesses superpower it's the gnarly treatment in the clinic with the villain as the psychiatrist yeah all of those negative tropes. I think one thing that I think would be worth a trigger warning is seeing that tranquilizer shot right in his neck, which you see really viscerally. Um, mm. Anyone who's been in a psych ward or has had that happen would find that really triggering, I would say. Have we said whether that's accurate or not too, that, that we just stab it into the neck? It is It is inaccurate. No doctor would ever stab anything into your neck. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a bad 
place to do it. There are so many very important things here <laughs> that you don't want to stab a needle into. Even stabbing like into the... Like Exactly, yeah. But, like, even stabbing in a needle into the, the bum, which is where you generally do a muscular, intramuscular needle, which is what these drugs are, or, you know, into that arm, mm. you, you're still risking hitting nerves and blood vessels and things. Like, it's not... Anyway, that movie trope of the the patient gets held like this and then they get stabbed in the neck. It's not real. <laughs> but it's effective. Effective as... As an image. As, as an in, image, in a film. Yeah, a disturbing image. Um, and it's almost like, like in real life what would happen is you probably have four security guards lying on top of you. But I think it's at the point where that, that image has been repeated so many times, like we watched Shutter Island the other night. I don't think you could put somebody getting a bum injection in a movie now, people would be like, what the fuck? Why did they put it in his bum? I think you could. I think it's time to start. Injections and bums. Injections and bums. Let's start a campaign. Let's go through the scores. Lived experience. I'm not going to give him a point. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. They, yeah. They, tried, they tried hard, but it's not it's, the same. And also they consulted with psychiatrists. Yeah. They didn't consult with anyone with DID from what we've read. Yeah. And that would have yeah. been key. Yeah. Although Oscar Isaac has said that he's had lots of um, positive feedback from people with DID. However. I did, I did see that, but that's just that's just luck. That's after the fact. Yeah, and that is just yeah. luck. And also, I mean, what have they got to compare it to? Some pretty trash depictions. It's like when I watched Babysitter's Club, I was like, well, at least it's not Steel Magnolias in terms of diabetes. Oh, diabetes. Like, <laughs> babysitters? <laughs> Sorry. Accuracy? I think, you, I, I think I'd probably give half a. Yeah, I think we should still just give it half because even though it was more accurate than anything we've seen, it still could do better. It, it hits the DSM criteria, but it also, it still has some fanciful Hollywood errors. Agreed. But yeah, no, I'm happy to give half a point myself, personally. Um, stereotypes. Again, I, I gotta give it nothing. Yeah, like. Maybe we should give negative points. I don't think I could give it anything. I, I think it falls again, drops the ball a little. It does too many too many negative ones for us to give it a point. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And helpful or harmful? Maybe half a point because I think it's overall helpful in that it's affirming and inclusive, mm. but I think it's harmful in terms of the treatment, um, the psychiatric stuff. It's almost as if like people just expect a mental illness movie to trot out a few of these things. And you know, just to be like, like we're a mental illness thing. Yeah. And they're like, we want to make this really respectful DID movie, but it's a mental illness movie. So, and it's also Marvel. Yeah. And Marvel, everything is so black and white in the Marvel universe. You and know? overblown and dramatic and yeah. 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 Larger than life. So it had to, it had to go there. So if like the only movies that existed were Marvel movies, which is how it kind of feels, at the moment, <laughs> um, it would be like a tremendously helpful movie. Yeah. Um, but the fact that there's like, you know, touch with fire, it's, it's just not, it's just not perfect. I would give it half a point. Can we drop a, can we drop a, an absolute bombshell now though? All right. Let's do it. At this point it. in the podcast. Let's do it. Well, I don't know about you, Steph. I don't, I don't know much about you beyond what we talk about on this sh- on the show. Can I just say that I fucking hate Marvel? And you know why? Why do you just like Marvel? Because Marvel. I just think the whole fucking a the whole fucking good and evil fucking battle bullshit. Like it's done. 
there is like 200 million of these fucking movies with no end in sight. And also they're just so fucking needlessly complicated. Like this show makes no sense. And the fact that they like... But you don't understand the law, Michael. And they like, you know, they kill off all the characters and it's like, but don't worry, they'll be, they'll be back. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to justify bringing them back. Like... It's just so, they're just hard. I find them very difficult movies to watch. And then the ones that are purporting to do something better, like this one, and WandaVision I thought was like an interesting portrayal of grief with kind of almost a similar vibe to this. I, I Sorry, full disclosure, I watched WandaVision. And even that ended in a fucking good versus evil fight, destroy a city, good, good triumphs. So it's just all fucking bullshit. And, you know, adults should know better than to watch this cookie cutter bullshit. And like special effects, who gives a fuck about how good special effects are anymore? Like it's. I feel like my problem with Marvel is it's completely oversaturated and there's a, even a fucking stadium yeah. named after them. I don't know why. I just don't understand why. I'm never going to go to that stadium unless there's like a band <laughs> I like playing there. But it's just something I don't, I've never connected with. If people love it, good on them. It's great actors that I like are in it. Oscar Isaac. It's yeah. just not for me. I get a bit sick of seeing it everywhere, but I appreciate people's love for it. They do, they do like it. They do like it. People like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis. So. It's not as bad as that. It's not as bad as Coldplay. <laughs> Suck it, Coldplay. <laughs> Thanks for joining me from rural Victoria, Michael Watson. You're welcome. Loved it. Loved being back in the hot seat, the psycho seat. Back in the hot seat, but from a distance. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us, please, on Spotify or iTunes or Good Pods. Um, sign up to our Patreon. Don't forget we have a fundraiser happening at the moment uh, for the Gidget Foundation, so your fees go towards them, which is all about perinatal mental health support. Oh, also, don't forget the watch parties. Oh, yeah, join our watch parties, and uh, we'll see you next time. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.